Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's November 1st, 1911, and another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by... Aria, Rebecca, and Ali, the Retrospectors. When the Italian military aviator Giulio Gavotti took to the skies over Libya today in history in 1911, his mission was simple, to carry out reconnaissance over the enemy positions. But just before he got into his Esrik Tauber monoplane, he had an idea, as he later recounted to his father. Today, I decided to throw bombs from the plane. It is the first time a thing of this nature has been tried, and I'm glad to be the first. And he was indeed the first person conducting an aeroplane bombing run in history. Yes, by hand. You know, I decided to throw bombs from the plane, which is not how I imagined this happening. You know, when you are doing the first aerial bombardment in military history, I was not imagining a situation that would be as equally dangerous to the pilot as the people the bombs were being dropped on. That's what this was. By hand, just chucking them over the side of his plane. Yeah, well, where we are in history is that this is only eight years after the Wright brothers in America had managed their first incredibly short flight. So Italy was very much still a young country, unified less than 50 years earlier, and it was quite keen for some conquest and saw parts of the collapsing Ottoman Empire as kind of just ripe for the taking, including territory in Libya. And so this enterprising young man who, you know, we know quite a lot about what he did on this day because he really was a very dedicated correspondent with his father. Um, He was sent to the front line and given this task, they were like, okay, well, we've got some bombs, we've got some new planes, you know, why don't you kind of work out what you want to do with the two of them? (laughs) We're new at this empire building, love. Give it a go. (laughs) Not only were the early planes really hard to fly, it's quite difficult to envision a scenario where a pilot was also lobbing bombs over the side mm. of them. But also, they could barely take any weight. They were just made of lightweight wood and paper. So they physically could not handle a payload of bombs. He had to carry them. He just carried a handful. They were sort of on his lap and then in a box he had installed in the plane. And the way that it came about was actually quite haphazard, it sounds like. In another letter to his father, he described that basically a couple of boxes of grenades had shown up and there had been sort of almost like vague gesturing towards them, being like, huh, maybe, in the, from the planes? So on the day, he just grabbed some and took them with him. Yeah, and the situation inside the cockpit sounded no more sophisticated. He said to his father, again in one of these letters, that he had affixed a little leather case with padding inside, and then he'd laid the bombs in that padding very carefully. And then he just put three in the case and had another in the front pocket of his jacket and then took to the skies. And from there, he then headed off to a place that he described as an oasis, but actually it was the town of Ain Zara, which is a little uh, village just uh, east of Tripoli. And then he looked out the side of his plane and saw some Arab fighters and Turkish troops who were uh, allied in the fight against the Italian invasion. And he then just basically started taking pot shots at them. It's very unlikely that even though this was the birth of all bombardment from airplanes that he did very much damage at all. But it is a sort of significant moment nonetheless. Yeah, well, it would have been, I think, 
terrifying for him, actually, because, you know, flying a plane at all was pretty scary stuff, never mind with a live bomb in your lap, um, but also terrifying from the ground. If you look at a photo of what these Torb planes look like, they're just like kind of giant birds. They're kind of beautiful, mm. and they would have been a matter of curiosity for the locals, wouldn't they? You'd rush out and you'd see it. Yeah. And then a bomb would drop from it on you. And you can imagine how unsettling that would have been to civilians who'd had no concept that that was a thing. I mean, now the two things go together so easily in our mind, planes and bombs, but not before this day. At the time, the real threat from the skies was seen to be airships, you know, airships still being a pretty good going concern at this point. Because of the structural weaknesses of aeroplanes, they weren't seen as being something that could carry those payloads. But airships could, you know, they were slow moving, they were actually pretty easy to bring down. But at the same time, they could hold a much bigger cargo than any plane. There was a novel in 1909 by a guy called Ronald Legg called The Hawk, a story of aerial war, which envisioned Britain repelling a German and French invasion using a giant bomber airship. But even so, by this point, the US military were already starting to experiment with planes. It's kind of sad because, you know, the Wright brothers had only just flown their inaugural flights and straight away militaries around the world led by the USA were thinking, great, how can we use this to kill people? I mean, not surprising in a way. And it's funny to read some of those early encounters between enemy pilots that they used to wave to each other. Like it was such a novelty, as you said, Ollie, that like <laughs> even the pilots themselves had a sort of like, oh, you've got one of those, I've got one of those, you know, <laughs> flying past one another. But, you know, it, like the, the progress that was involved here was so rapid that, yeah, by the end of even the First World War, you'd, sh- you'd shifted from these sort of very makeshift ramshackle uh, tactical uh, approaches to bombing to to a really like concerted kind of uh, battlefield bombing that targeted not just enemy troops, but increasingly civilian sites as well. Well, one of the people witnessing this event was Major Julio Dauhe, who formulated his argument for war from the sky as a result of seeing this event, which he later articulated in print in the command of the air, which was basically that the sheer terror induced by the mass bombing of civilian targets was worthwhile and moral because it shortens conflicts and saves lives because of the shock and awe of it. And you can see the origin of that military argument, which is very much still with us now, Mm. Right here in 1911, he wrote, quote, At present, we're fully conscious of the importance of the sea. In the near future, it will be no less vital to achieve the same kind of supremacy in the air. Yeah, and Govotti himself said that his commanders were very pleased with his, you know, kind of spontaneous bombing mission on this day, which is interesting given that he was skirting pretty close to the Hague Convention of 1899, to which Italy was a signatory, and it prohibited the discharge of projectiles and explosives from balloons or by other analogous new methods. And Italy's response to this was that the Planes weren't analogous to balloons because, you know, they're completely different. That's fine. I mean, the Italian press didn't care. The Gazzetto del Popolo boasted, Aviator Lieutenant Gavotti throws bomb on enemy camp. Terrorised Turks scatter before unexpected celestial assault. Which, as Arian was saying, was somewhat of an exaggeration, given that almost certainly there were uh, no fatalities at all. Nonetheless, the headline still captivated audiences around the world and the Italian press ran with a very tub-thumping image of the exploits of Lieutenant Gavotti. Interestingly, because the word bomber didn't exist at this point in history, they called him the Flying Artillery Man. (laughs) And they didn't really pay any heed, as we're doing now, to what it would have felt like to be bombed. He was trumpeted as having innovated the art of winged death. Mm. 
Yeah, and the reason that Gavotti's assault didn't do much damage in the end was because he was throwing relatively lightweight explosives. These were small kind of handheld grenades. They weighed about a kilo and a half a piece. And this was the issue that was still really being tested was how should people be bombarding from the air if they were doing it? There was obviously the weight limitation, but there was also just the case of what was the most effective way to attack from the air. Some of the early US tests had had pilots firing rifles at targets on the ground. And this was possible because early planes did fly very close to the ground, but taking your hands off the controls to fire a rifle was obviously unadvisable for the exact same reason. People really wanted to have at least one hand on the controls and they were flying these planes. Other tests involved dropping sandbags or flower bags on outlines representing battleships. There had been a breakthrough in 1911 when a US Army artillery lieutenant called Myron S. Chrissy dropped a custom-made bomb that he had, he had had made for himself personally to his own specifications. He dropped it on a test flight, leaving a crater that was, quote, about the size of an ordinary washtub. <laughs> and this continued continued to be the problem for so many of the early bombers, which was this enormous lack of accuracy. Like pre-World War II, most of the planes that went up continued to be guided by this very crude nautical navigation techniques. And they carried these bombs in open racks and lacked the accuracy and the bomb loads to do very much damage at all. So one, they couldn't reach targets that were of very much significance. And two, they didn't have very sophisticated or powerful bombs by the time they got there. But then by the time you get to the 1930s, you had these faster planes and more powerful aircraft made entirely of metal. They were able to defend themselves because increasingly they had uh, like machine guns on board with which they could kind of protect themselves from incoming uh, fighter planes who were trying to stop them. And it was at this stage that really, you know, you're making uh, moves towards the Second World War where air power and particularly air power in the form of bombers became a huge matter of significance. <laughs> yeah, to understate it. I mean, you wouldn't want in 1945 to be sitting there with a bomb on your lap, would you? Right. <laughs> Tomorrow. So that he could get the whole school to oh, scream out. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Go Nats! Ditch the ads and get a Sunday episode when you join Club Retrospectors patreon.com slash retrospectors.